This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share, and collaborate. The pivot is critical because what can happen, and you know this as well as I do, is we um, humans are, we can get pretty stubborn, pretty fixed. Hi, and welcome to the Ian Weekly Show, and this is your host, Todd DeVoe speaking. And this week, we are talking about situation awareness and high-risk decision-making. As an emergency manager, we are put into the position to make decisions uh, that can have an impact on the entire community. So having strong situational awareness and be able to make those high-impact, uh, high-risk decisions is really important to what we do. Today, I have with me Dr. Richard Gassaway, who prior to becoming a PhD, he was a firefighter that turned into a chief. And Richard had 30 years on the job as a firefighter slash chief. After that, he has written many books on the subject of decision-making and situational awareness. Richard is also the host of SA Matters as a Situational Awareness Matters podcast. And you can find that on iTunes and also any other um, podcasting platform, I suppose. Speaking of that, if you guys come over and join us over at Facebook, it would be great to have that conversation with you. We'd love to have you in that closed group uh, so we can discuss things that are happening in the field of emergency management. Um, this is a place where emergency managers get to talk to emergency managers. And please find us on your favorite podcast listening platform and download us, like us, share us. Hearts and shares are free. So thank you so much for spending time with us today. And now, on to the interview. Richard, welcome to Ian Weekly. Todd, thanks for having me. I'm super excited and looking forward to our conversation. So one of the things that you're focusing on here in your life here is that you're retired from fire, right? Right, yep. And so now you talk about high-risk decision-making. What exactly is high-risk decision-making? Uh, well, it's those decisions that we make in environments that are high-stress, high-consequence, time-compressed, with changing conditions. And those decisions that hold the potential for grave consequence if we, if we get it wrong. And as I call, what I would call consequence would be um, injuries or fatalities um, or significant loss of um, properties or assets or for companies that would maybe be like, you know, reputation or, or uh, you know, loss of the business. And so really just those decisions that hold great potential for bad things to happen if someone gets it wrong. So as we're recording this episode, um, 
I live here in California, and California's on fire, uh, literally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> literally. Yeah. Um, and and so there are decisions that are being made, such as evacuations, things like that. Um, you're getting, you know, maybe sixty to seventy percent of the of the accurate information coming in that you're making your decision based upon. Um, is that the type of decisions that you're talking about, or? It's it's logical that the better you understand the situation, the better your decision making will be. But there's kind of a weird dichotomy about situational awareness, and that is you can have terrible situational awareness, zero situational awareness, and you can still make a great decision. We call that lucky. <laughs> and and you and you and I both know that out there in the world there are a lot of people lucking their way into successful outcomes. And they do it so often that they think that it's a skill set, but it's just luck but, because they don't really know what's going on when they're making their decisions. But luck is on their side and it turns out well and, and you know, they're real proud of themselves. But um, some of them, I think, look back after the fact, you know, as they look retrospectively onto what happened with obviously more factual data after the fact. and. Uh, and realize that they were lucky. And so what I'm focused on is just trying to program out some of the luck. I mean, we'll all take a little luck when, mm-hmm. it, when it comes our way, uh, but program out some of the luck and replace it with a skill set that improves the awareness, which then becomes the foundation for good decisions. So going back on that luck, I, I've been involved with a couple of large fires and, uh, you know, they're, the guys are out there doing the best they can do to defend the lines. They're they're out there digging it in, and then the fire really goes out because change of weather, cold front snaps in, you know the humidity levels go up, uh, mm-hmm. things like that, and then the fire just kind of stalls and stops. But had really nothing to do with the tactics that we're we're applying to the uh, to the fire. Um, is that the type of luck you're talking about, or are you talking about just like you know you make a left hand turn and then all of a sudden there's the the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow? Yeah, that's that's more that's more um, what I'm talking about is the responder who makes a decision that um, after the fact they could look at it and say, uh, you know, I had I had two choices. I could have turned left. I could have turned right. And uh, I don't know why I turned right, but I made the decision to turn right. And lo and behold, it took me right to my destination. Um, but they thought that there was a good reason to uh, to turn right, but they can't really explain it. It ended up just being a, a lucky decision instead of one that was based on, you know, a, a, a preempt or something that that um, laid a foundation to make help them make that decision. So it's more the it's more the um, guessing type decisions that uh, that someone would make versus. Um, you know, luck like weather, um, you know, because sometimes forces beyond our control will lead to successful outcomes. And sometimes forces beyond our control that we have no way of knowing will lead to detrimental outcomes. You know, we talk about the, the good luck of, of a change of the weather. Well, there can also be an unfortunate change of the weather that might not be able to be um, predicted or anticipated. So it isn't always it isn't always good luck that you know befalls us. Sometimes it's bad luck. 
as well. And, and, and even though, you know, I can teach someone how to develop and maintain situational awareness, I can't make them a promise that I can provide them with a formula that can guarantee their ability to predict every possible outcome there. You know, anybody who would try to sell that is selling snake oil, <laughs> but there is, but there is, but there is a, a recipe or a formula that can be used to, um, to help someone be better at the skill of being, um, of, of being predictive. And, um, you know, if somebody has that skill set and they understand, um, you know, how to do that, then in the moment they'll be, you know, better prepared to make accurate predictions, you know, and you, as you had said, you know, you, they're, they're making those decisions with 60 to 70% of the information, which I think is a critical, um, a critical point that you made, because if you wait for 90% of the information, and I won't even go as far as say hundred, cause I don't think we ever get there, but if you wait for 90, you've probably waited too long. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we can't make this, we can't wait around to have complete, an accurate, factual, holistic picture of everything that's happened because those conditions never stop changing. You know, the event never stops morphing into something new. So we have to lock on to reasonable um, beliefs that we have enough information to form enough awareness to drive a decision and then have the the, um, courage or the confidence to make a decision, realizing that that we don't have um, all the information. Now, I want to pause for a moment, if you allow me to say, equally as probably more dangerous, I'll say, than not having enough information and in making a decision is having too much information and trying to make a decision. So for those who keep questing for more and more and more, thinking, well, the more information I have, the better decision I'll make. When you're talking about developing situational awareness, especially high risk, high consequence, time compressed situational awareness and decision making, volumes of information are not your friend, they're your enemy. We don't need, think of it this way, if you wanted to, if you wanted to put a puzzle together to figure out what the puzzle picture is gonna be, it's a lot easier to put together a puzzle that only has nine pieces versus a puzzle that has 900 pieces. Right. So what we need to focus on are those nine, and nine's actually too too high of a number, but for the sake of conversation, we'll call it nine. The nine pieces of the most important, big, honking, really um, context-rich pieces of information that we can assemble quickly to give us enough picture to be able to drive a decision. Um, you've probably heard of the term analysis paralysis. Somebody just gets to the point where there's so much information they can't analyze at all. And, and sometimes they'll get so frozen, can't make a decision. You know, if they're overwhelmed with the magnitude and volume of information and, uh, you know, just, you know, if I set a, if I set a nine piece puzzle in front of you and said, put it together, how long would it take you? So, I don't know, 20 seconds, maybe. If I set a 900 piece puzzle in front of you and said, assemble, how long would it take you? 
hours. Right. Some might even say a day. Right. You know, and that's what we want to be very careful of is we don't overload and overwhelm ourselves with too much information. I mean, it's enticing because we always believe, especially in the day of in the modern day of technology with access to so much information on the internet that the more information we have, the better we will be at making decisions. But there's a lot of research behind it that says that, that they've done with like consumer purchasing that they realize the more information they provide a consumer, the less likely that consumer is to make the purchase at all. They'll just fatigue and walk away from it. Right. That's like the, the in and out model, right? They have a burger that you can get and you can get the burger in a couple different ways. But at the end of the day, it's a cheeseburger or a hamburger, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a very simple decision. They they don't they don't want to give you you know twenty choices because you you might fatigue or get confused and then just walk away from the purchase. So the, you know, it's kind of yeah, it's kind of like the in and out model of decision making. <laughs> <laughs> well, sure, we'll give them credit. <laughs> <laughs> now now you've got me hungry. <laughs> yeah, you can you, you know you get a burger, burger cheese, and you can throw a couple extra cheese or a couple extra burgers on there. But at the end of the day, it's a cheeseburger. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right, and a, and a damn good one. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was the study? I forget that they did. There was a name for it, but they used jellies, right? And they, you know, at some point they had like twenty decisions of jellies, and and the people were like, "Okay, yep. that's too many." Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of research like that. You know, there's a lot of um, university programs with masters and PhD level students studying decision making processes. So that's that's a common study for them to figure out what what triggers you know, people to, to get them to yes on a decision and what triggers them to just say no or walk away. And it's the evidence there is you know, pretty clear that the more, the more information people are provided um, versus a small number of those most important things that somebody wants to know. You know, you think about somebody wants going to buy a car. You know, they, they, they pay, you really do pay attention to a very small piece, pieces of information. You know, maybe what's its, what's its crash rating? What's its, how many miles per gallon does it get if that's important to you? And, uh, you know, well, what color is it? You know, right. do, do you have, do you have it in red? <laughs> you know, and, and I'll take it. Um, but, you know, there's, there's, you think about if you, if, like the owner's manual. I mean, it, you know, nobody's going to go through the owner's manual before they make a decision to buy a car. I mean, they probably won't even go through it at all until they have a problem. Right, right. And if, you try, and if you're trying to sell them based on here's all the solutions or here's all the, the ways this product works, um, you can see that someone could get easily fatigued. And we just don't want to have that happen in, the, in, a, in a, an emergency management decision-making environment as well. Because the, the truth of the matter is to drive good decisions – Oftentimes, it's not volumes. It's it's quality of information, not quantity of information. Um, so for your listeners out there, just think um, a small number of puzzle pieces, but really context-rich pieces that we can fit together and get, as you would say, 60% of the picture complete. And know that there will always be 30 to 40% that that we won't know. And if we took the time to find out, by the time we found out what that other 30 or 40% was, half the 60% that we'd already gathered will be changed. Right. <laughs> you know? So it's at some point you just got to say, I've, you know, I've got enough information 
to make the best decision that I can in the moment. Well, because I, in dynamic environments, it's, it's, it will never be holistic. Right. When the whole incident's done, when the whole incident's done, our critics will look back on add on it and criticize us for the decisions that we've made because this fact, this fact, this fact, this fact, but we didn't have those facts in the moment. Right. Yeah, you know, they have them now because they've done a you know six month analysis of the wildland fires, and it's easy to when you have complete data, you know when you have the nine hundred puzzle piece puzzle completed, for someone to look and say, well, you should have known about this piece up here in the corner. It was a factual piece of data. Well, it doesn't mean I had it, and if I did have it, it didn't mean that I understood it or right. that I took it into context as to other things that were going on. And it's very easy. For you know, after the fact, with the hindsight bias for critics to to take exception with decisions that are made, you know, and and, and that's where a lot of criticism comes from for for the high risk decision making that police, fire, EMS, emergency management make. As those critics look at it with with a much clearer view of what was happening, because they're always looking at it after the fact, without stress or consequence looming over them. And it's very easy for them to see and comprehend the things that we couldn't see and comprehend in the moment. It's so unfair, but, uh, you know, that's just how society is going to judge us. Right. Well, let's take a quick break here. When we come back, I want to ask you a couple questions and I want to talk sure. about pivoting. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we connect people with the latest technology possible, whether it's mesh networking, augmented reality, or real-time translation, allowing people who need help to find help immediately. Better matters because lives matter. Welcome back from that break. And uh, we're talking about decision-making here, obviously. And one of the things I teach my students is you know, you're making a decision based upon, say, 60%, and I, sometimes you, you'd love to have that 60%. Um, but you also have to be able to uh, give yourself the flexibility to pivot when more intelligence comes in, not just information. Um, what do you think about pivoting, and how can somebody make that change um, and not throw the entire operation into a uh, conundrum? Yeah, well, the pivot is critical because... What can happen, and you know this as well as I do, is we um, humans are, we can get pretty stubborn, pretty fixed in our ways of thinking. And once we believe we know what's going on, and once we believe that we know what the course of action is, and once we commit to it, lock onto it, and implement it, it can be extremely difficult to hit the stop button and say, this isn't working. We're going to retract all of our resources, regroup, and assess for a new plan. That is extremely difficult. And in fact, as I've looked at so many near misses and line of duty deaths, I believe there were times, I truly believe there were times where there was enough intel being shared that they should have pivoted, but they didn't. They just stayed true to hope or, or, or 
hoped for luck. And the, the incident was heading toward a catastrophe. And the information was there that said you should stop, regroup, pivot, adjust. And, and, the, and they didn't. And it's so hard that once somebody, especially at a command level, because once you hit the pause or stop button, what you're doing is making essentially a public admission that the plan that I made is failing. And we have to do something different. And it takes somebody with a whole lot of so, um, high-quality self-esteem and a very in-check ego to be able to, in the moment, with a lot of resources deployed, to make that decision and um, pause or retract or to pivot. It's very difficult. There are people out there who can do it, and who, there are a lot of people out there who don't really care about their public judgment. They care about doing the right thing, but there are a lot that are more concerned about what will others think of me if, you know, if I have to admit that this great plan that I made and all the resources we committed to making this great plan aren't, aren't working. Right. That, that's difficult. It truly is. I mean, it's, we, we need to acknowledge it. Oh, actually, we need to practice. We need to practice how to make the pivot. And, and a lot of organizations and a lot of training programs don't. They talk about doing it, the importance of doing it, the need to do it, the how to do it, but then they don't practice it. How, they actually how, have how, people do it. How would we practice that? What would that look like in a in an exercise or a drill? Like just an inject yeah. coming in that just totally screws up your plan, and you just have to change it through, or or is it more? Is there a more? Is there a better process to pivoting than just saying, "Oh, time out, let's redo this"? Well, I think I think we have to actually the the, the decision maker has to actually practice making the pivot what would that look like what would that sound like what would that feel like and and in the in the course of you know if you have a drill or an exercise that you know is going to contain a pivot um you 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 can you can do one of two things here you can either tell the person in charge you know we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna morph and change this exercise and then and then you're gonna have to you know pivot or or you could just not disclose that and see how long it would take for conditions to get to the point where somebody would pivot. And I think, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm always more toward the, the idea of disclosing that it's going to happen versus surprising somebody because you can embarrass them and you can make them angry. And, and I'm not, I'm not a big fan of that. Um, but it, you'd be surprised how, how long somebody will ride a train toward the tracks that are obviously ending and it's going to crash before they'll commit to making a change. So, you know, what would it sound like to say, for example, you're in, you're in charge of, of an incident and I come into the situation and I think we need to pivot. What would that conversation sound like? Would I speak up? A lot of people won't speak up, you know, fear of public speaking, number one fear that people have. Well, when you have to speak up, in a group, in a group of people, and tell the boss you think what we're doing here isn't working, and we need to pivot. That's a form of public speaking, and there's a <laughs> lot of a lot of potential embarrassment, consequence, ridicule, judgment that can come. So would I speak up? If I spoke up, what would that sound like? 
You know, how could I speak up in a way that's going to be courteous and professional, yet get your attention and have you truly realize in the moment of managing this incident with all of its stress and complexity that we need to hit the pause button. We have to pivot here. Do you think people and, are afraid to talk because they think it's a career-ending move to, to you know, embarrass the chief or whatever? Well, it can, it can be. I've, I've talked with people who, who, um, who have said that uh, they'll speak up and they don't care what anybody thinks of them. And I don't know if they're just saying that, you know, that it's kind of like a, you know, an ego move in front of an audience or whatever. Um, but I've also had people, I'll give people scenarios and say, would you, would you speak up under these conditions? And you'd be surprised how many of them will say to me, it depends on who's in charge. <laughs> so what they're saying is, if the person I have to speak up to is the right person with the right mindset, with the, with the strong self-esteem and a ego that's in check, yeah, I'd speak up to them. But if it's this person, oh, God, no, because they will be they will not appreciate, you know, someone pointing that out. And I think the person who has to speak up in a lot of ways, they don't know what to say and how to say it. So, I mean, there's a process, there's a process for that. And there's a way to teach that, but then it has to be practiced. It's not enough. It's not enough for me to say to you, Todd, if you see that I'm messing something up, you need to speak up and you say, yeah, Rich, I will. We actually have to practice. I have to create a scenario where you actually do speak up, follow that recipe, and we have that conversation about what your concerns are and, and how we pivot. And, and this process can be discussed and taught and practiced in advance of ever actually needing it. So say, for example, if I said, Todd, you need to speak up. And if you said to me, well, Rich, what would that, what, what would you want me to say? And if I, the boss, to teach you how to speak up to me, and then you practiced it with me, again, we're not in an emergency, you practice it with me, and I coach you, and you get your confidence up, then when we actually have to do it in the real scenario, I'm not surprised by this. You're using exactly the terminology and talking to me exactly the way I had taught you to do it. How could I possibly get mad? Right. This is what I want you to do. I mean, I, if I'm going to get somebody killed, I don't want somebody to be afraid to speak up. I want to know it. I think every good boss would want to know it. But how we speak up and how receptive somebody is in the moment under stress and consequence and changing conditions and, and you know, the, the, the whole pressure of the incident um, getting the details of how, about how to do that work down in advance is really important to the whole concept of pivoting. Have you uh, read the book, Turn the Ship Around? Um, no, I have not. Okay. It's uh, by uh, a retired Navy uh, uh, captain, and uh, he, he was in charge of a submarine, multiple submarines, but uh, this one particular submarine he got on, uh, wasn't the one he thought he was getting on, and so he knew everything about you know submarine X, but he gets on Y, and it is what it is. He's the captain of that ship now, and they're doing some exercises, and he he says, hey, you know, basically extensively say, hey, put it in the fourth gear, and uh, the ship doesn't have a fourth gear, and everybody kind of looks around, and and in the navy, you know, you just don't ever you know buck up against the captain, 
And uh, so they go, okay, fourth gear I, and they're sitting there. And eventually the guy goes, one of the, one of the, you know, junior enlisted guy goes, um, how do I do that? You, you know, and it goes through this process and, and he, he kind of changed his tune and instead of going, you know, giving permission for people to ask questions and, and giving permission for people to, to go through the process of saying, instead of going, may I do this, going with the, I intend to do this. And although to civilians, it probably sounds a little a nuanced, it's, that's a huge shift in, in the military a lexicon. Um, but that's, that's him giving people permission to ask questions and not challenge him, but to clarify, to ask those clarifying questions. And I think if you're going to challenge somebody that's like a President Trump, and I'm not trying to get political here, but I don't think he appreciates uh, people challenging him. But if you ask proper clarifying questions, does that sometimes help that leader make the de- right decision? Uh, a- absolutely. I mean, but it really depends also 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 on the leader. You know, if you talk about a leader who might have low self-esteem and a high ego, they're keeping all politics out of the discussion. Just think of any other leader uh, out of the political realm that you would think it would be that have that disposition. Um, there's probably no way to approach that individual in a way that they will be open-minded and appreciative to going any other way than the way they have set it to be. And I, and I'm sure that in, in, in the military, you know, even though this uh, particular submarine captain had the disposition of being open-minded and and encouraging to uh, inquisitive type discussions with staff, I'm sure there are plenty out there who would say, how dare you? You know, you want you want to clean toilets with a toothbrush for the rest of your career. You know, question my judgment in the moment again, sailor. And and so really a lot of it depends on the disposition of the leader to want to encourage that kind of open dialogue. And the best way to, to determine that and get that all worked out is well in advance of being in the heat of of a high risk decision because in the moment, if you don't have it worked out, it's very hard to speak up to someone that you think could hold great consequence for you or that they will attack you back in the moment in front of others and, and, you know, damage you um, because you were trying to do the right thing. You know, they just didn't appreciate you doing it now a lot of that is also on on the sender of the message of sending the message um in a way that isn't um that isn't controversial isn't going to um uh you know get that person angry in other words how do you have that discussion in a way that isn't going to evoke a a challenged response you know Right. Work, working that detail out in advance is certainly the way to do it. You know, walking up to the boss and saying, you know, you keep doing this and you're going to get somebody killed, you big doofus. It's probably not the way to begin the conversation of a pivot. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, that's a good, that would be a career ending move, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's not just what you say. It's how you say it. 
It's, it's the words you use. It's the approach. And again, work this all out in advance and practice it. Don't just talk about it. You know, think about anything that we do. We can talk. We, we can all talk a good game. Mm-hmm. But then um, when it actually comes to actually performing, some people are really good and some people find out they were better at talking the smack of a good game than actually performing. And this is one of those things that even though it's a verbal skill, it's not a hands-on physical body movement activity, it's still exercising the process of that hard discussion in the moment that leads to that that is the foundation of making a pivot. Right. You know, it's the idea of uh, being able to talk a good game, talk a lot of smack, and uh, I, I love watching those um, fight videos where the one fighter comes out and he's jumping around and he's talking smack and doing whatever. And as soon as the bell rings, it gets his bell rung, you know? Gets, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't that Fight Club or something that was <laughs> the movie? <laughs> I just remember seeing some videos of it. It just kind of cracks me up, you know? But, um, well, here we're coming close to the end and, and there's a couple of things I wanted to, wanted to ask you, you know, before we let you go. And, and one is if, if there was one thing that you could say to all the emergency managers in the world at one time, uh, what would it be? Um, don't assume that you have a thorough and comprehensive understanding of situational awareness because you've had a run of good decisions in your career. Situational awareness is extremely complex neurological process. It took me five years and a PhD in cognitive neuroscience to get to the point where I think I am now qualified to have these conversations with responders to explain what it is, how do we develop it, how does it get obliterated, and how do we recover from that so that we can make good decisions and get to successful endings. It's an elephant of a topic. And most most people in this business have little to no understanding of what it is. Intuitively, they know it's important, but they have little to no really in-depth understanding about how do I develop it. I mean, if I were to, I won't press you for it, but if I were to press somebody, give me a definition of situational awareness. They'd probably say, well, it means I got to pay attention to what's happening you know around me and i'd say that's great that's one part of it there's more hmm. what else what else what else and they they would get to and i'm not trying to put anybody on the spot i want them to be able to nail it you know make my heart sing if they nailed it you know and gave me the the, the, the full scale of it and and then and knew how to do it and knew how it could go wrong and knew how you know best practices for how to manage through it just like any other skill set you know you you wouldn't you wouldn't uh you, know, you wouldn't be a paramedic if you didn't learn how to how body systems work right. and situational awareness is learning how brain system how your brain systems work to create awareness and the, then how that awareness turns to understanding and then how that understanding turns to prediction and it is a process and we can learn it but so many don't, and they just underestimate the value of that knowledge and that skill set. And it, it, it makes my heartache because it's, 
uh, issues of situational awareness are one of the leading contributing factors to near misses and casualties in 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 our business. Uh, uh, you know that people make bad decisions because they had a bad understanding, and they don't do it on purpose. You mm-hmm. know, with malice, it happens so innocently, but um, you know the consequences is still there. And uh, so I would say for my advice is make spend some time understanding the depth of how to develop and maintain awareness and then how to use that to drive good decisions. What are you reading right now? Well, I just got done writing a book, so I haven't been I haven't been reading a whole lot. Um, but I did just finish a book um, called The Mission, The Men and Me, which is not a new book. It came to me recently. Um, and it was um, about the uh, a commander who commanded a uh, operation Anaconda just um, after. 9/11, and where they went into Afghanistan, and he talks about how that mission went and successes and failures. And he, in that book, and this is the reason it was re- uh, recommended to me, he makes probably 20 plus references to situational awareness. You know, and he 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 commanded the the special forces through this operation, and his his connection to how important critically important situational awareness is to making good decisions. And he talks about how bad decisions were made because of not having awareness. So when I read that book, um, I went, Oh, there's hope, you know, there's there, this guy gets it. And for everyone who reads this book, I think they'll understand from his perspective, although it's a military one and, you know, not necessarily a civilian perspective, but, that you know, here's this really smart guy that's career military, heading up special forces, and lauding the critical importance of situational awareness to make good decisions. I mean, I I, I smiled the whole time, and I if you say a book I read, I actually listened to it on an audio book because I, I travel <laughs> a lot, so I listen to them on you know the airplanes right. and my hotel room and my long drives and stuff. But it was it was it was a really good book. It's not a new one, you know. It was but I, I think I don't know when it came out, 2008 or nine or something like that. But um, it was uh, it was it was a good read for me. You know, I I learned a lot about how the military does their decision making model too, which he you know he talks some about in the book as well. That's awesome. And uh, when did your book come out? It came out in September. Uh, so it's my sixth book on situational awareness and high risk decision making. Um, and this one I wrote specifically for the audience of business industry. Um, basically, I wrote this one for the for for the non-police, fire, EMS. So for like uh, emergency management, this would be the fit. If you know, if you're not when you, know, you have um, high-risk decision-making to the level that if I get it wrong, I die. <laughs> yeah, and that's one level of stress, you know, like an airplane pilot. You know, if I get it wrong, I'm going to be the first one to hit the ground. Right. And, and, and then you have um, a different level of high-risk decision-making 
for like the air traffic controller that says, if I get it wrong, it's going to have a great consequence on other people, but not necessarily me. Right. And uh, so I wrote this new book for those people who still have to use situational awareness to drive high risk decision making, but not necessarily on the sharpest end of the outcome. This book's designed more to have like the bosses understand how the worker can have flawed awareness and then get hurt or killed on the job. So the bosses aren't as critical um, and accusatory, but more understanding of just how easy it is for someone's awareness to, to get, um, you know, to get out of kilter or to be, to be, to be, um, to be impacted and how it happens. I want them to clearly understand how it happens and then share some best practices that hopefully then those, safety managers and bosses, one, won't be so judgmental of the people who make those sharp end decisions, and two, can share those best practices to help those who work for them be better at making good decisions. Because I think, in the end, that's probably what any anyone who in a supervisory role wants is their people to make really good decisions, because then it makes you know <laughs> the boss's job easier, makes the boss look good, and uh, um, but the boss needs to understand how to support that environment of high risk decision making. And we, and, and I talk about in there, you know, things like the fear, like we talked about the fear of speaking up. And so the kind of, some of the stuff we talked about are some of the things that are contained in this, in this book of helping, um, helping people be better at making good decisions to be safer. So how do we find um, that book? Yeah. Thanks for asking. Um, so they can get it on Amazon. And uh, they can also order from my website. Now, really the only difference between order from my website and Amazon is if you want a signed copy, order from my website. I have books here. When the order comes in on my website, then I sign it and mail it out to someone. If you don't really care whether you have a signed copy or not, you just order it on, on Amazon.com and you know Amazon will ship it to you. And I don't have a horse in the race. Either way, I'm, I'm happy to just have the book into the hands of people and, uh, you know, some people want a signed copy and some people could, you know, really <laughs> care less if it's signed or, <laughs> signed or not, you know. So, right. um, but yeah, that's the two ways. Essaymatters.com is the website and there's a store there. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, Amazon just search either, search my name, um, Richard Gassaway, or just search the book title, How Smart Workers Use Situation Awareness to Improve Safety. And they'll find, you'll find it. And we'll put those uh, down in the uh, show notes as well, everybody. So don't if your if your pencil's not sharp or you're you're driving, <laughs> or if that, you're, dri- yeah. you're driving, <laughs> yeah, don't don't take your eyes off the road. It's bad for situational awareness. <laughs> All right, Richard. Well, uh, I'd love to have you on on again sometime. We're we're right there at the hard stop. So uh, uh, again, I thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Todd. I really appreciate it and enjoyed the conversation.